We have a few distinctives as Christians, things that mark us out. Um, there's a passage in the Bible, it's in Romans, where the commentators, well, the, the translators particularly, they might write something like marks of the true Christian. I'm not a huge fan of the word marks. I prefer to say, I mean, this is just me, uh, distinctives of disciples. What are the distinctives that people would notice are slightly different to the world or the community around us? Last week, we, sh- we saw one of these distinctives. Last week, one of the major distinctives of Jesus' disciples is love. Now, we see this all the more important in a pandemic, in a world where, as we saw last week, social media is taking conversation and ramping it up not to love, but to levels of real, sad disagreement, moving to defriending, moving to all sorts of division. And we have an opportunity, as we saw last week, to to love, because love is a standout distinctive of Christians. It is a standout distinctive of the church. Jesus does not say, you'll be known for your snarky comments on social media. Jesus does not say, you'll be known for how well and witty you are as you disagree with one another. Jesus does say, you'll be known disciples by what? People look at you and go, you know what? I think they're, they're different. And how will they say they're different? Because we're more snarky than they are? No, because we're more loving. And we love one another. That is a distinctive of the Christian church. And it's going to be all the more distinctive in a world that is falling apart. There's another one as well. And it's here in this passage. Here is the next distinctive of discipleship. The next distinctive of Jesus' disciples is when we face death. And that distinctive is hope. It's not for nothing that we see phrases like faith, hope, love in the scriptures. Very key and core distinctives of Christians. And here is this next one that appears in 1 Thessalonians. It's hope because hope is the only thing that for us, is distinctive in the face of death as different to many others. Now, death is a subject that is often spoken in our world in whispers. I speak at a lot of funerals. I speak at a lot of weddings. When I speak at weddings, and I'm going to do it again in November coming up soon, God willing, I always ask the couple... Give me your favourite Bible passage. It doesn't matter where it is in the Bible. I will preach on it at your wedding. Whatever your favourite passage is. And I've got a few really encouraging passages given to me. Uh, Some people said, well, I've given you a doozy. Um, Yes, I've been given some doozies, but you can take any Bible passage and preach it at a wedding. One of the ones I was asked to preach at a wedding was from Ecclesiastes 9. It goes like this. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love. This is a wedding. Enjoy life with a wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. When I preached that, um, which the couple invited me to preach, apparently I was told not long after the ceremony, the service, you have offended a lot of people. People love giving you that message, don't they? People love that message of telling you how many people you've offended. You've offended a lot of people. Why? Because you spoke about death at a wedding. Friends, 
we need to speak about death every day. Death is not something that just you can schedule into your calendar, it comes for you in 2051. Death is a daily occurrence. We often speak in our society about death with whispers. Or we use death as something that we talk about as happening to people over there. Or perhaps death is just statistics. It's the number of people who have died. It's, it's about you know, morbidity rate. No, no, death is more than a rate. It's more than a statistic. It is deeply personal. It affects people every day. And there are so many people who face death without hope. I will say this all my life, through good times and bad times, but it is a privilege to be your pastor. It really is. Like, I'm having this conversation at the moment, but I do this without pay. Like, I, I, I would do this, I would pass to you because I love to pass to you. But I remember, almost on a daily basis, in all honesty, that I won't do this forever. If I have the privilege of pastoring you all my life, I know there is a day coming, a day coming soon, perhaps sooner than we think, where someone else will preach from this pulpit, where my body will be in a coffin, perhaps around here somewhere, depending where the media team best need it to be, where that coffin will then be walked out this building across floors that I have swept and washed, past walls that I have sanded and painted, out into a car park that I've parked in over the years, and that will be my exit, unless Christ returns before then. I will die. You will die. You will bury me or I will bury you. We have had funerals from this building already since it's been converted from a play centre to a church building in three years. So when the Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he writes to a young church like we're a young church and he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters. I want you to know death will come and you need to be ready. But more than that, they've had questions perhaps They've had questions about their loved ones who have died. Questions about those who have left this earthly world. They've, they've questions about where are they and, and, and what are they doing and all those sorts of things that we ask perhaps at funerals, that we ask perhaps of our loved ones. And Paul wants to pastor them. He wants to help them in their grief. And he says, as you notice, and it's the first point on the outline of the sermon outline, on page five of that service sheet, not only do we have a distinctive love as believers in Christ, we have a distinctive hope. We have a distinctive grief, therefore. We grieve with hope. We grieve with hope, which is a strange paradox, isn't it? It sounds weird to grieve with hope, but we can, and it's different to the type of grief we see in the world. A distinctive grief is to grieve with hope. Look at verse 13 again. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There are different types of grief. There are many in our world that grieve with no hope because death 
disrupts everything. As we heard from the rich farmer and the kids' talk, he had plans. I'll build bigger barns. I'll set my life up to be able to retire early, have holidays. I'll have all the time in the world. We often plan this, don't we? We plan as if I have all the time in the world to enjoy life, to get the most out of it, and then we get angry when death comes. But rightly so. Because as much as we want to pretend death is natural, it's not. It doesn't belong in this world. Death is an invader. People over the generations in every culture have tried to explain death, tried to speak about death in such a way as to make it less awful and more palatable. We say things like this, Oh, death, it's only natural. Then why do we cry? If death is so natural for the plants that we can say, well, it's just a natural part of the cycle. We don't cry when a plant dies. But we cry when our loved ones do. We say things like, oh, I can face my death, I'm ready to go, as if it's like going to the dentist. Everyone's nervous about their death. Let's be honest. We can be honest here. We speak about dying with dignity and even modifying how we do that. But there's no dignity in death ultimately. Death is an invasion. It's an invader in our world. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 15 in our call to worship. We saw this, and if you missed it earlier, it's in the service sheet online if you want to go there. But the the stinger of death is sin. Sin is a poison. And it kills us. It causes us to get old and shrivel up and wither, and then eventually it sends us to our graves. Death has come into our world because sin has come out of our hearts. Why is death here in our world? Because my sin is here in our world. Sin exists, death exists. It's so linked, which means now, when we see death, who is such an invader, we weep. Romans 12:15, we weep with those who weep. It is good and right to weep at death, to grieve at death. Jesus himself, we saw this in our first Bible reading from John 11, Jesus himself comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he does not come to that tomb and then say it's only natural he doesn't come to the tomb of Lazarus and say well he had a good life he doesn't come to the tomb of Lazarus and say could someone play his favorite footy song he comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he weeps The English text we have almost, it kind of tames it a bit. It's not that he just sheds a tear. He weeps so publicly that people around can see it and say, look at how he feels. Death is an intruder. 1 Corinthians 15 is that Bible passage we often read at funerals. As Rory read it out in our call to worship, we hear it now this morning, but we often hear it at the graveside. 
And I want you to notice, as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's fascinating because it's almost like Paul speaks about death in such a way that personifies death. Like, he, he, have you noticed that? He, he actually, it's almost like he's talking to death. He's quoting Old Testament quotes. Then shall come past to pass the saying that is written in the Old Testament, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I've been at graveside funerals. I've done a few of them. Where There is, there is the graveside. The, the hardest part of a funeral, I find, is the time when they lower the coffin into the ground. I spend time with a family in preparing for a funeral. Spend time with the family preparing for the service, the ceremony. But of all things, that is when we weep bitterly. That is the hardest point. And I've looked into a family's eyes and I've looked at that grave and I have picked up these words and I've said, Death, you are a mongrel. You take from us, you haunt us, and then you hunt us down. You end our dreams, our plans, our relationships. And death is personified in such a way that it's, Paul speaks to it like he's an intruder himself. Death ought to grieve us. We ought to weep. It makes us wither and it robs us. And yet... Then Paul writes, the same one who writes 1 Corinthians 15, then writes this. But we don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. We still grieve, yes. We grieve at death, but we grieve differently. We grieve distinctively. There ought to be a difference in the way we grieve. There can be a difference in the way we grieve at death. And how is that possible? It's the second point in our outline. It's verses 14 to 15, because we are ready for Christ's return. It's the series banner of our sermon series from Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, in every paragraph, in every section, there is something about being ready for Christ's return. And here, all the more, we grieve distinctively and differently because we are ready for Christ's return. Nervous, perhaps. But there is a nervous readiness. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Look at verse 14. It almost, it feels like an old familiar song, doesn't it? Like an old tune. Don't you reckon? For since we believe. What does that sound like? We believe. We believe. We believe. It sounds like the Apostles' Creed. I, I think it's actually quite creedal. Um, so is 1 Corinthians 15. It's very creedal. It's, it's meant to be said. It's meant to be written in such a way that we would remember it even if we didn't have a Bible handy. That we would remember it perhaps in our death. That if we were in that moment where we knew this was it, we would remember, friends, brothers and sisters, what do we believe? We believe that Jesus died and rose again. He died for our sin. He rose for our hope to bring us to God. He gives us all the hope in the world. 
And so as we remember this mini creed, so memorable, we believe in it. We rely on it. What would you stake your life on? What would you go into your death trusting in? Friends, it's got to be good news that can last even through death. What is the the best news in the world you've heard? Will it last through death? You win a million dollars, will that last through death? I said this so many times from this pulpit in this church, when Kerry Packer died, who was the richest man in Australia at the time, when he died, how much did he have? When he died, he had nothing. Nothing. Zero. Nothing. Death takes. It's gone. You are born into the world with nothing. You exit the world with nothing. So you've got to have some good news to hold on to. Something with real solid hope that lasts and does not expire with you at death. And Paul says, it's Jesus, friends. And so he says in the next clause, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's speaking to the church who have lost loved ones. He says, friends, we believe in Jesus. He is our hope. They believed in Jesus. He is their hope too. That even in death, he is their hope. And he uses the language which is a little bit weird unless you understand it in the context of the resurrection. He says, those who have fallen asleep. Notice in this passage, in fact, that phrase, those who have fallen asleep, he refers to the dead as fallen asleep. It almost seems like a misplaced way to describe our dear loved ones. They're not asleep, they're they're dead, but he, he keeps saying fallen asleep. Why? Now, he's not meaning soul sleep, which is a whole other doctrine developed only in recent times by a few different groups. Soul sleep is where people assert that when people die, they're actually unconscious to the world, unconscious to anything. They're just asleep and then they're dormant and then they're woken up at the resurrection. But no, soul sleep doesn't fit with the picture given to us in Scripture. Paul writes in other places, and the the scriptures speak in many places, about being actually awake to things, awake to God with Christ. He's not using the phrase asleep to talk about soul sleep. No, he's using the phrase here in the context of resurrection. You see, Just as we believe Jesus died and rose again, we know and can believe that those who have died are with Christ, awaiting a resurrection day where we'll all be raised in physical bodies. And as we wait for that day, our friends, our loved ones, our family who have died, for now, are in that sense just asleep. Paul speaks in verse 15 with this word from the Lord. Look at verse 15. 
For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he uses the word alive to say, yes, I know they're dead. They're not just sleeping for a few hours. We who are alive in contrast to those who have died. But he still again says, those who have fallen asleep. Paul speaks here about the return of Christ. It's personal, it's powerful. The return of Christ brings all those who are now dead and with Christ spiritually, they're with him, present with him, enjoying him. But we will all one day be raised physically to be with him. Just like Christ came personally the first time, he comes personally the second time. But it's different. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 24, we read this, For the lightning, as the lightning comes from the east and the west and shines all that far, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he came personally and locally the first time, but Jesus is coming personally and globally the second time. Somehow that we can't fully comprehend yet, we will all see him. It will be like lightning. Like we can see lightning in Bendigo and they can see lightning perhaps at uh, Ballarat. We will see lightning. It will be like lightning across the sky. He will come personally but globally and we will be raised. Which means if that is imminent and soon, friends, we need to be ready How ready are you for lightning? You get, I guess, a, a sense it's coming, don't you? But you're never quite that ready enough. It just happens that fast. Friends, that is like the return of Christ. You are hearing now the need to be ready. So be ready. Because you can't predict the second Jesus is coming. And thirdly, we see he himself comes with a cry of command. Verse 16. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord Jesus comes, and all who are dead in Christ, all who've died with their faith in Christ, will rise first. In the book of Daniel, which is apocalyptic literature, the word apocalyptic doesn't mean a zombie movie. It means a revealing In the book of Daniel, there's this revealing in Daniel 12, verse 12, And many those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. All humans will rise, but some will rise to life forever with Christ and some will rise to death and hell and torment forever. We have hope that if you trust in Christ, you will rise and be with him forever, with new life. Jesus comes personally and with a cry of command. Notice this. Who is the only one that not only commands waves and storms, but now commands death? Now he commands death like he owns it, because he does. 
Think on this, friends. Just like God spoke, his word of command and creation exists. God speaks and says, let it be so. And here it is. Just like Jesus commanded Lazarus, comes to the tomb, weeps and grieves, and then says, Lazarus, come out. It is the same Jesus who commanded creation into being, who commands Lazarus to rise, then comes with a cry of command and says, rise, and the dead will rise. There is a song that we sing at Reforming. I love it. It's, just, it's got these words about uh, tombs will break open, graves will break open, and we'll turn them into flower beds. And we who are alive, who are left, will be with them and with the Lord Jesus. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes this again at verse 17. Look at this. So we will always be with the Lord. Always. And as he comes, he comes in the clouds. Not just because he's coming in the sky, but the clouds symbolize his glory train. And the word for coming is that word we've seen in Second Thessalonians before. It's parousia. It's not just that he's arriving like he comes to the door, but he's arriving in power like a victorious emperor or king. And as he arrives in power, all those who are victorious with him come with him in this glory train. It's a parousia, an arrival, a coming. For the king is coming to resurrect his people to new life. Where we'll eat with him and one another, enjoy life with him like we're meant to, where death does not invade because death has been defeated and we are with our friend and saviour forever. Friends, this is a great comfort to people who are grieving. This is a great comfort to us, for we are going to grieve one day. And that's why Paul writes that last verse, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These words. Jesus went through death himself. People wept at his death. People thought that was it. We're so used to this. We're so used to death doing what death does. They wept and thought he was gone and sealed the tomb. Oh, yes, he talked about coming back, but who does that? Who does that? Jesus does that. Jesus does that. Jesus comes back. Jesus goes to death and back. He went through death. Jesus sees the invader, the intruder who is death, and he says, I'm going to come close with and engage you. I'm going to invade the invader. He goes into death and comes back victorious. Jesus went through death so that all who rely on him and go through death, now see it as kind of like going to sleep. It is Jesus himself who tells his disciples he's going to be with us to the very end of the age. So when he ascends and sends his spirit, he is with us spiritually now. 
But then he's saying to us also, even in death, which we can be nervous about, what happens? How does it work? What do I step into? He says, I'm with you. I am the shepherd that holds out my hand. I'm with you in your death. I've never left you. I'm with you to the end of the age. And I'm with you as you go into death. I'm with you. And so now as a great comfort to a grieving people who place their hope in Christ that he is with us in life and death. No guru, no religious leader, no prophet is with you in life and death, but Jesus is. Friends, don't be in a situation where you are now left without Christ. This is the most important thing for your whole entire life. If you are without Christ in death, you are without hope. Don't leave the hope of a lifetime for eternity. Don't leave others grieving for you to be left to a hopelessness of death. Please know that Christ is your only hope in life and death. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes this about those who don't trust in Jesus. You go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and he writes this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Jesus wants to save you from that. Notice how personal Jesus is. He personally has come for your personal hope. Friends, you can visit the graves of gurus. I'm told you can go and find Confucius ashes somewhere. I've never been there. But I've been to some gravesides of important people. Founders, religious leaders, founders of whole movements. People who are venerated. You can view their bodies. But you'll never be able to view or venerate the body, the dead body of Jesus Christ. Instead, you can worship him who is risen. And there are so many modern funerals today, and I go to a lot of funerals. I serve at a lot of funerals. Uh, People say of ministers, you know, there's that meme going around. That doesn't bother me, but I've seen it. It's interesting, you know, you always need, insert every occupation you can think of, you always need one of these people. And you may need a preacher in your life. It's like, oh, well, whatever. I get my place. But I get it. Right? I'm a, they say, I'm a, my job is hatch, match, and dispatch. And, and, and so I, I serve at a lot of funerals. I would have noticed this in Australia, and I'm not the only one to notice it. A lot of funerals today, we almost treat death as our justification. So the Australian person can ignore Christ all their life, but they're justified at death. And so we speak about them in ways that are not true. We pretend all sorts of things. We even talk to them. 
to people who have given no thought to Christ, even if they heard him proclaimed, spoken of, preached. Friends, I'm talking to you now. You need hope in Christ like you need eternity. No one else died for your sin and rose for your hope. No one else did that. No one else has been to death and back but Jesus Christ. And no one else can be your personal comfort in life and death. And friends, Reforming Church, that's our hope. He's our hope. Which is why Paul writes, we encourage one another with these words. Last week was love one another. That was our Christian distinctive. Now, in the face of death, we encourage one another. We don't stir one another up to sin or temptation. We don't stir each other up with snarky comments. No, in the face of death, we don't just give statistics to one another. We, we encourage one another. We speak about Christ in the face of death. And it will come. Death is coming for us all. This is our opportunity to encourage one another with these words, friends. These words. There's a lot of people who say they're Christian, but don't seem to live lives of this hope. We live lives of angst and anger. We all get angry. I get angry. We all get angsty. I get angsty. I get anxious. But there are some of us who seem to spend most of our lives, instead of praying and encouraging one another with these words, instead of doing that, we're using all sorts of other words. Now is not the time to be snarky with one another or angry with one another. Now is the time to be encouraging one another with these words. You see, here's what I reckon. Religious people who don't find their daily discipleship and hope in Christ, end up unhappy and joyless in life and death. But hope in Christ changes everything now for us, friends. It changes everything. We can be a community in the face of increasing despair with real hope. And our conversations can bring something different than angst, anxiety and anger. Here's our hope Here's what it could look like this week. How about this week we try it? When there's all sorts of conversations happening, so much said on social media, so much said in our society, when speaking into that, could we try and speak about hope in Christ? Just try it. Because the dead in Christ are asleep to us. We can have hope. We can grieve with hope. It shapes our lives, our death, our funerals. As I said, I, I served a lot of funerals. And here's where I want to finish right now. With words I heard at a funeral recently. I served a lot of funerals and I've been to lots of funerals where people have not had their hope in Christ. And they're sad. Every funeral is sad. But it's a kind of different kind of sad you have long eulogies, which replace testimonies of people's trust in Christ, but long eulogies of someone's life, trying to cram everything they can about the person's life, from their birth date and how heavy they were at their birth, to 
Everything is in that eulogy. Everything you could think of in a person's life, except what did they hope in? That's sad. That is an ultimate tragedy. I've been to funerals where we play the footy song. I don't mind footy songs, just because my code doesn't really do them, whatever. And then I've heard people say things like, after playing the footy song, well, the old devil's smiling from us upstairs, probably taking over heaven, or hell doesn't want him. All that sort of stuff is said at funerals. How would you know? You haven't been there. I haven't been there. I only know one who has. But let me tell you, friends, let me tell you the saddest moment I've ever heard at a funeral, and then I'll tell you the most joyful moment. The saddest moment I've ever heard at a funeral. A father stands up and speaks about his dead daughter and he says this, Julie, wherever you are right now, I hope you're happy. Oh my goodness, I just about broke down in that moment. The grief this father was experiencing that he did not know where his daughter was. That is what is most sad. That is grieving with no hope. That is grieving with a hopeless cry, a dereliction, a kind of a loss. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what is beyond death. That is the saddest I've ever heard. And let me tell you of the most hopeful grief I've heard. A couple of years ago, I was at a funeral. A son stands up at his father's funeral. The father trusted in Christ all his life into his death. And the son knew it. The son wept. Middle-aged man, grieving, tears, yet with hope. And here's how hope was expressed. Knowing these words, which happened to be preached that day from Thessalonians 5. Knowing the language of what is to say those who are asleep because of hope in Christ. As the son finished the eulogy, he said, Dad, I'll see you in the morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we needed these words today. We need to encourage one another with these words. And so we pray, help us to hold on to hope in Christ and show where hope is found in Christ alone. Help us to hold on to that hope, to grieve, and yet to know, even through tears, Jesus is trustworthy. And so we pray with grateful hearts, looking forward to the last day. In Jesus' name, amen.